I'm Dr. Susan Eyrick, and welcome to Earthfire Radio. Earthfire Institute is a wildlife sanctuary and rehabilitation center whose mission is to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature. It's my honor to introduce Stan Rushworth. Stan was born in 1944 and raised by his grandfather, who is of Cherokee descent. He's an enrolled citizen of the Chiricahua Apache Nation and a member of the Santa Cruz Indian Council, where he's an advising cultural elder. He's the elder in residence at the University of California, Santa Cruz, with the American Indian Resource Center. He served as an Army volunteer in the Vietnam War, and upon his return, received a degree in creative writing from San Francisco State University. During the 70s, he lived and worked among the Maya in Guatemala. He has taught Native American literature at Cabrillo College for the last 29 years and also at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and worked for 18 years at Cabrillo's Watsonville Center, teaching basic skills and critical thinking surrounding indigenous people's issues. As a tenured faculty emeritus, he currently teaches Native American literature at Cabrillo College and works as an activist and advocate for indigenous people as a teacher, writer, and speaker. He's the author of two books, Sam Wood's American Healing and Going to Water, The Journal of Beginning Rain, both fascinating reading. Soon to be published, a memoir included Moral Wounds and The Wolf's Eyes, an indigenous veteran's view of a world at war. Welcome, Stan. reason I wanted to speak with you, which I consider an honor, is because we need to hear a Native American voice about what's happening and a Native American perspective on it. Um, I can get scientists and I can get Buddhists, and I can, but I don't have a really good um, representative of the Native American perspective in what's happening. I did speak with a Native American person from um, South Africa at a conference lately, and they do, they're doing ceremonies and all kinds of things as best they can, and the response of one of them was, um, we don't have the answers either about what to do. Um, so that's just a quickie. I would really like to hear whatever you think is important to say that you would like people to hear? So, Dar, Jamal, and I are working on a book right now uh, of interviews with uh, Native Americans, and uh, we may be including Aboriginal people from Australia. We're not sure, but so far, we've got a, a pretty big list of uh, Native people that we're interviewing about climate change. So we're in that process now, and I've been going to conferences and talking to uh, a lot of Native people, uh, for the most part right now, Native Californians. Dar has interviewed Fawn Sharp of the Kinault Nation. She's been president of that nation for about 15 years. we have quite a list of people and there some of them are quite well known uh tribal leaders uh uh landed people reservation people we've got people also uh that we've already interviewed who are not landed people they're not reservation people they're not they have no federal recognition or state or local recognition, even though they're living on or near the lands that they've been on since the dawn of time, as one of the people I interviewed. So his people go back 20,000 years right here in this area where I live, minimum 20,000 years. That's 20,000 years is what Western science acknowledges at this point. 
but for him, it's the dawn of time. They've been dealing with this, what I am hearing from every single one of them have been dealing with this since first contact. And they say, uh, as Greg Castro says, we're still in first contact. When you think about the amount of time that indigenous people have been here, even if you acknowledge the kind of relatively short time period of 20,000 years, and you look at 250 years uh, against that, 250 years is the blink of an eye. Within that time, a lot of destruction has happened. <clears throat> and Native people have been recognizing that destruction right from the get-go. So this is not a shock to any of the Native people that I've been talking to. Uh, this is not something new. This is something that's a logical progression because you cannot, uh, you cannot treat the mother this way. You cannot treat animals. You cannot treat other people this way and expect there to be no payback. It's, it's pretty ridiculous to assume otherwise, right? It's, again, it's part of native science. You know, you do this, this is gonna happen. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, my grandfather talked about this my entire life. You know, I'm 75 years old, almost 76 now, and I've been watching this and uh, trying to respond to it. I try to respond to it in my classes, and I have for the last 30 years. If you go back and you listen to Thomas Banyakia, Jake Swamp, uh, Philip Deere, uh, you see the same thing. They were talking back in the 1960s, the Tyrona people uh, in the 1970s, I think, did a film with BBC called a message from the heart of the world, uh, the elder brother's warning, and they are speaking to it very, very directly. So what I'm finding with all the Native people that I'm talking to, once again, that, that this, has been, this has been happening for a long, long time. When you, I hear a lot of non-Native people going, well, this is the end of life as we know it. Well, you know, I'd say in California from 1848, 49 to the late 1870s, there was a 90% population reduction due to massacre, starvation, disease from starvation. Okay, not, you know, like a big smallpox plague that came in. The plague that came in was the type of thinking that came with the colonists and that that created a 90% population reduction in less than one generation. That's pretty much the end of life as you know it, okay? <clears throat> On the plains, <clears throat> the stats are 60 million buffalo were killed in 60 years. I've read reports also that said 40 million of those buffalo were killed in a 12-year period to deny the Plains people a commissary when they were resisting militarily uh, the encroachment onto their lands, okay? So the end of life as we know it has been going on for indigenous people for quite some time here on Turtle Island. And at the same time, it's a very short time. So what I'm seeing is a lot of people responding uh, very, very directly uh, they're responding in a lot of different ways, uh, mostly through uh, a, a really wide array of actions from uh, Ron Good, who is a North Fork Mono Tribal Chair, uh, doing controlled burns and cultural burns uh, in the area of the Sierras that he lives in, going down to meet with Aboriginal folks in Australia, learning their techniques for controlled burns. Fire has been used uh, here for 
thousands of years to control uh, to control wildfires from happening, like we see in California now. And what we see in California now has been happening because the uh, the California native people have been prevented by law from doing control burns and cultural burns for about 130 years, and so. Those folks for the last 15 years or so have been working, that particular tribe has been working with state forestry, uh, <clears throat> teaching them how to do this. They've been working with other tribal communities. Tribal communities are sharing these techniques that are being regenerated and they're teaching their young. Uh, here locally, the Amamutsan people, uh, uh, I know quite a few of, and one young man is a good friend, is learning all that fire uh, technique right now as we speak. And they're working with state forestry. So that's one example of people doing really, really good stuff. All of this is within a context that I think uh, it's very much along my line of thinking, what I was taught right from the get-go. It's, it, uh, I think uh, Kyle White, Dr. Kyle White, who's a Potawatomi scholar at, <clears throat> back east in Michigan, I think, and he talks about the tipping point. You know, people are talking about the tipping point being uh, greenhouse gas emissions and two degrees Celsius and this kind of thing. And he says that the, you know, he can articulate it a lot better than I can, but the tipping point, the true tipping point is long past. And that tipping point is lack of kinship. Okay. It's lack of proper kinship relationship. And that has got us to where we are. And so he's saying, you know, at this point, we have a choice to make as a society, talking about the United States, and perhaps you can expand out to civilizations, but directly here on Turtle Island, we can go into a panic and we can freak out about the two degrees and we can do all kinds of technological things to try and change that, but we're not really keeping the long term in mind. So we're really not going to accomplish the same thing unless we go back and repair the kinship relations. Okay. Now, Dar's science uh, says that the two degrees or 1.5 to two degrees is already baked into the system. Okay. And so what I get from reading Kyle and from talking with Kyle is that we need to get a more long-term view in it. As he said, uh, the last person we want making a decision about where to go in a panic situation is the person that caused the problem in the first place. Okay. So that's pretty darn clear to me. And so, what we need to do is to have a longer view and say, you know, we've got to deal with repairing these relationships that have been broken. That's going to take education. It's going to take technology in different senses, okay? Uh, American Indian Science and Engineering Society had a credo at one point of tradition into technology, all right? So that's to me, a way of bringing back right relationship into, uh, into technology. Uh, a Yokuts a friend of mine, who's also an anthropologist, talked about California Indian peoples being highly technological peoples uh, before the settlers came. And what he meant and what he explained was they were very, very... Uh, highly sophisticated uh, technologies of kinship. Uh, he said that the anthropologists still didn't understand all the degrees and layers of kinship, even the kinship terminology that California people uh, were using. Now, I say were, but 
I want to put a slash in R because this is the thing that I think is really important for people to realize is that Native people are responding to this and have been responding to it since the get-go. We're not always successful having our children put in the boarding schools. 85% of them in the 1930s were in the boarding schools being stripped of their cultures, their languages, their practices. That destroys the science. It destroys the, technology, the social technology. It destroys all of that. So a lot of us are in a process of recovery from uh, and kind of an ongoing first contact. We have uh, very high dropout rates in school. That's something that we have to deal with. And so we have large networks and small networks trying to keep our kids in school, trying to uh, let them and help them get educated in whatever fields they choose because there is no one field that's over another field in terms of putting the relationships back together because it's a holistic thing. When we say with all things I'm related, that's what it means. Okay, it doesn't mean you just go over here and do this or you just go to indigenous people and get the knowledge, you know. It's not that process. You know, uh, uh, there was a, an elder, Uncle Henry Tyler, used to come to my classes and years ago, and people would ask these questions because he would give these warnings about where it's all going. And they would say, well, what do we do? And he would point to his, his brain and say, you have a mind, use it. Mm -hmm. You figure out what you need to do. So I have a bit of an issue with people going uh, too much to Native people and wanting what they imagine pre-contact uh, ecological knowledge to be. The, the knowledge that's needed from Indigenous people is how the heck have we survived this colonial uh, catastrophe, okay? How are we still here? How do we deal with the despair? How uh, do we deal, not did, but how do we deal with all the problems that we have socially, uh, uh, scientifically, environmentally? You know, how do we, how have we been dealing with this and how are we dealing with it now? Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's an, it's an ongoing thing. I, it, it, I, I just recently met a young, uh, a couple of young Native people up in the, they work up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And they were talking about uh, seed, the seed diaspora. Uh, one of the things that we have been dealing with is the diaspora. You know, the highest percentage of Native people uh, uh, live in uh, urban environments, okay? The termination policies of the 50s, the, the forced migrations, all of this, you know, has created a huge Native community that's not on its original land base. So those of us who are part of that diaspora are working with people who because of colonization, no longer have any say over their own lands, but they still live on or near those lands, like here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So these young people, by young, I say late 20s, early to mid 30s, are going around collecting seeds that Native families have kept alive. Uh, they mentioned a, a Cherokee family that's kept alive a huge variety of, uh, of native corn. And these seeds have, have adapted over millennia to particular environments. And so they're bringing seeds, say, from the Southwest or different places that they would be what they call drought tolerant. And now they're bringing them up here and they're planting them in Northern California where we have more of a scarcity of rain. 
okay? They're planting these seeds and teaching young kids how to plant these seeds in the cities, okay? In the San Francisco Bay Area. So this, this and Aboriginal folks down in Australia are doing the same thing, young Aboriginal people. So this kind of, this kind of response has been going on for quite some time, and I think it's accelerating now. And I'm not so sure that it's really the, uh, the panic around the climate uh, change that's causing that acceleration. I think it's something else that, that's, uh, that's been building for a very, very long time that's kind of uh, gaining a momentum now. And it goes across the boards. It's political. You know, you see at, um, at Alcatraz, more people showed up here at Alcatraz than for the sunrise ceremony than ever have. And a lot of people from different races, uh, different political communities. Uh, so I, I see a a whole lot of unifying stuff happening uh, that's really quite extraordinary and quite beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so again, I think there's a danger in looking back to the concept of traditional ecological knowledge as it's imagined being in existence before uh, the settlers came here. Okay, because I think it, there's a, the danger is that it's a conception of non-native America. It's it's an overlay. It's a conception that's formed out of the Western mind, and it's not really the depth of relationship that comes out of the indigenous uh, community. Okay. It's like a formulaic kind of uh, projection, really. And it ignores the genocide, okay? Which has caused the, the radical alteration of life as we know it. So the real wisdom that's needed, once again, to repeat myself, is how have we survived this? And how do we continue to survive it with dignity, okay? and with educating our children, you know, recovering cultures that have been under attack and still are under attack. I live in a very progressive community and I have maybe one or two, maybe three students that have ever read an indigenous writer coming into my classes in a, in a college setting. That's pathetic. You know, and yet that same society wants traditional indigenous knowledge. There's something really absurd and kind of insulting in that, right? Yes. So, so those are the kinds of frustrations that that we have to deal with, right? Uh, but we we still deal with it, okay? I don't get mad at my students coming in who know absolutely nothing about native culture because I realize that they're victims of, of the American educational system. They're victims in, of a sense of the erasure of us, which continues, which we're smack in the middle of. Okay, that's where Greg is saying we're still in first contact. And they want something that they imagine that we had in order to solve the problem that we've been warning them about since day one. And they caused. Yes. And continue to perpetuate, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the people of the United States, when the United States was formed, were not even talking about the original colonists, but after the United States was formed uh, through uh, abuses of treaties and creation of treaties, decided to be in a, uh, a dominant relationship to yeah. the native nations. And so kind of the parallel is like a dominant parent and it's, or a dominant spouse 
and it's chosen to maintain that relationship over time. And so now it wants something from that quote unquote child. We don't see ourselves as children, but certainly the, I think the dominant culture does. Uh And now the dominant culture thinks it wants something from us, but as I mentioned earlier, the something it wants is its own picture, okay? And it's still maintaining the dominant uh, relationship. And if we listen to Dr. White's admonition to, uh, to return to right relationship, that relationship needs to be based on respect and not on dominant positioning. That's so, why we don't listen, because we don't want to hear that. Because it means, right. it means a real change, not a superficial change. That's correct. And I think largely what people don't want to hear is the nature and degree of abuse that has been laid on Native societies and in, continues to be laid on Native society by virtue of what many Native scholars now call erasure. And, you know, if we're talking about coming back to respect, then we have respect is found through understanding of the nature of the relationship and the history of the relationship, okay? In any kind of uh, uh, abusive relationship between a spouse or parent and child or whatever, the abuser needs to fully understand the nature of its abuse before they can move on as as a res- as a respectful pair okay right. and with nature and, and when the uh dominant person which in this case i w- i'm arguing is in in our country at least is the united states the people of the united states is un- or are unwilling to face the nature of the abuse, then there can really be no reconciliation. And so it's very difficult to move forward in a mutually respectful manner. And so then the, the knowledge or the information, the methods that the dominant culture wants can't really be gotten, it can't really be understood because that dominant relationship is still being maintained. The school system is a good example of it. Uh, I think there are only two states in the country, maybe three now, that require native written curriculum in the K through 12. And so we're maintaining a really deep ignorance of Native history here and of Native ways of exactly what's going on because the abuse has been so profound that the dominant society is afraid to look at it, I think, for fear of of having to deal with guilt, for fear of having to deal with pain and I think the society is kind of almost like in a health, wealth, beauty cult in a sense that it doesn't, it doesn't see pain as part of life and part of growth, right? It doesn't see emotional pain. So it's still holding out in a position of entitlement, you know, by saying, well, I didn't do that, so I don't have to deal with that. So it's not really looking at the mutually experienced transgenerational trauma, okay, that comes from the degree of abuse that's happened. So a lot of Native scholars today would argue that that the erasure in the school system is another form of cultural genocide, in a sense, because, you know, we're continuing to create generation after generation of ignorance of what the deeper issues are. If you want to show disrespect for a person, the biggest way to show that disrespect is to ignore their existence. 
right? That's where disdain uh, comes forward. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, the American edu educational system is very, uh, very guilty of that. And perhaps it's a numbers game. Perhaps there aren't enough Native people to be perceived as having power in a, you know, like as a voting block and stuff like that. And so it doesn't get looked at. But I think the real reason is it challenges the American idea of ex American exceptionalism and moral clarity and, you know, the values of freedom and equality and all that kind of stuff uh, is not being lived when it comes to Native people. And it hasn't been, right? So the difficulties within the Native community pretty much get laid on the Native person, right? The, the social ills and stuff, you know, we don't really, don't really look and see, well, why is this person doing this? You know, why is this particular community struggling with these things? We don't look at the boarding schools. We don't look at the havoc that they wreaked. We don't look at the broken treaties, none of it. So, um, I think all that has to be looked at really honestly, not just accepted, well, we did a bad thing. I think really the nature of the badness needs to be studied. You know, really, it, it, it needs, to, again, back to the abusive relationship, it really needs to be understood. The perpetrator has to really understand what he or she has done and be able to communicate that to themselves and to the quote unquote victim in order for respect to be generated. Then you can have communication. Right, then I think we can move forward. So it, my point is that it's a very systemic issue and that it's going to take time and it's gonna take kind of a deepening and broadening will on the part of the people of the United States to come to grips with this. Uh, at the same time, positive relationships can be generated. It's not a, it's not a uh, strictly, well, you have to do this before you can do this, but it has to all happen at once. And I think it has, there has to be the will there. You know, there has to be the desire and there has to be an understanding of what's needed in order to start generating this respectful dialogue. Uh, to get back to kinship, to get back to kinship. Can I just say one thing here, that everything you're saying applies equally to our relationship to nature? Yes, exactly. It's a, well, there is no separation there. <laughs> But I'm talking from a white person's perspective, so I just wanted to make that focus. You don't even have to because, yes, for you, there's no separation. But for pe most people listening, we need to make that clear. So I two other questions. One was um, you were talking about first contact and that we're still in first contact. But you're referring to first contact with European culture coming over here to the Americas? or first contact in Australia and all over the world? I can't speak directly to uh, Australia because uh, the that term- I went, what did, That was just an example. What do you, did you mean by first contact? Because it wasn't just here. No, it's been, uh, the reason I can't speak to Australia is because I'm not Aboriginal from Australia. So the term first contact is not so much uh, an intellectual concept as it is an emotional relationship, a response. It's an emotional response. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an actual interrelationship that's kind of an ongoing thing. So I can only speak to it here on Turtle Island because I'm of Turtle Island, okay? 
and uh, my friend Greg Castro, who is a former Selen and tribal chair and works with Society for California Archaeology the last 25 years. He's an activist, Selen uh, uh, and Ohlone man. And um, he uses the term, and as he explains it to my students, when you look at being in a, your space, your, your home for 20,000 plus years, or as he puts it very dramatically, since the dawn of time, okay? Uh, and you've got 200 years of experience adapting to the colonial culture here in California. You're still in first contact because 200 years is absolutely nothing in terms of 20,000 years. And that brings up the whole notion of time. As Greg explains, and I explained to my students in the book, uh, Going to Water, uh, Leslie Silco deals with this. Time is like an ocean, it's not a linear construct. So if, if you're caught in the Western idea, and I use Western just by, for sake of a, for lack of a better word, because I think that Western science is shifting this idea of time as strictly linear within its astrophysics, okay, as recently explained to me by an astrophysicist. Uh, if you see time as linear, then it's very easy to kind of arbitrarily put that which you don't want to deal with emotionally, financially, uh, psychologically, socially, it's very easy to put all that in the past. Yeah. Okay. Oh my goodness, that was the past. We can't deal with that anymore. Yeah. So Leslie Selga would put it. Okay. That's pretty much a position of privilege. Well, Native people, Native Californians specifically, don't have that position of privilege. Okay. So their experience is, is still an experience of radical adjustment to what's come here. For example, um, there are thousands upon thousands of Native people here in the San Francisco Bay Area, as I mentioned before, that have no federal recognition. They have no reservation. They have no land base. They have no state recognition. Uh, they don't get anything from the federal government whatsoever. Okay, in order to become recognized within the state or within the federal government, they need to be able to prove, I think it's seven points, but the, the bottom line is they need, need to be able to prove that they were maintaining their culture and their sacred spots and their relationships with each other, their tribal identity, their tribal ceremonies, that they were maintaining that for the entire time that the dominant culture was attempting to destroy that. And they have to present that to the society that has been attempting to destroy them in order to get recognition by that society. Yeah. That's first contact. That's still first contact, all right? Yeah. Big time. And all of that reflects in the school system. When I have my class of 30 people, instead of having one or two people who have ever read a native scholar, and when I have all 30 of those raise their hand on first night and say, yes, I've read so-and-so, I've read so-and-so, and they're naming native scholars and native artists, then I'm going to say, well, maybe we're taking another step in terms of this contact. But for all of my students, reading this Native history is the first time they've gotten it. So it's their first contact with a real Native voice as well. That we're still separated. That's why Greg uh, uses that that way, and, and that's why I use it that way as well. I suspect in Australia, it's very, very similar. Yeah. Some friends of mine were just here from Australia, and they were talking about the depth of the racism 
there and the struggles of the Aboriginal people in getting recognition. And uh, a journalist uh, just sent me a, an email talking about that. She grew up in Australia and uh, has done a number of films with Aboriginal people. And she said, they, they have nothing down there. They're like the Californian native people. They have no reserves, no treaties, no nothing. It's so they're still in first contact too, I would argue. It's similar with the Bushmen and the Kalahari too. Yeah. So what I was saying, I think that first contact is everywhere that Western civilization went, is what I would argue. Yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. Everywhere. And I think it's a I think it's an important concept because it implies an interactive relationship and an ongoing relationship rather than things being over and done with. And that's I think really, really important. And that speaks back again to Dr. White's idea of building relationship. And of course, this is what we see around here. You know, uh, a lot of young native people like Canyon Sayers and her mom, uh, Anne-Marie Sayers have really spent a long time building interrelationships with the surrounding community uh, in order to stop fracking and, you know, all kinds of things that they've done. And Canyon's big thing is building community. So these are responses to climate change, they're responses to uh, encroachment by Western civilization, by colonialism. There's really no separation between these phenomena. You know, it's, I think it's very dangerous to think of climate change as being separate from colonialism. Yeah. You know, so if, if we want solutions, the solutions have to be across the board. So, you know, I think Kyle's right. We have to have the long-term perspective. We have to look and see, well, indigenous people are in the midst of this long-term action, okay? It's not like they're picking up, uh, you know, the ancient stone of indigenous wisdom now, right? They've been doing everything they can to hang on to it since the settlers first came here, which is, you know, a broad span of time, depending upon where on Turtle Island that you live. That said, I think it's also really important, and uh, Dart, I want to include this in our book, to acknowledge uh, what was happening before the Europeans came here. I met a man, a Kumeyaay scholar down in uh, Southern California recently. He was quoting early Spanish soldiers coming through saying that they came across a valley, for instance, with immense numbers of people, okay? And as far as the eye could see, native edible plants being farmed, yeah. okay? Without uh, massive architecturally designed engineer, uh, and engineered uh, irrigation systems because they're operating with the natural landscape as it is, okay? So they're growing things that don't require a whole lot of irrigation coming in, which is the opposite of what we have here now with this technological society, okay? Uh, herds of deer with a thousand deer in it, okay? This is what they're describing. Bruce Pascoe's an Aboriginal scholar uh, is talking about the same thing in Australia. He's quoting early English settlers and early English uh, uh, Irish settlers who are saying the exact same thing, that they're seeing fields of grain as far as the eye could see, you know, fish traps, all kinds of things like this, uh, large numbers of people living quite well. And, uh, you know, they recently found uh, 
a uh, tool for grinding flour uh, 60,000 years old. That's a long time, you know, and these folks, you know, these early English people are saying, you know, I they gave me a cake to eat that was the sweetest cake that I had ever eaten. So this whole kind of gatherer-hunter uh, lack of sophistication uh, of native people and that it's like a simple life and stuff like this, this is part of what needs to be uh, uh, eliminated because we have to see again, as Chuck Smith's talking about, that technology is the social technology, and that includes all the beings that live in that landscape, including the plants, the animals, uh, you know, everything. Okay, there has to be what now people call uh, holistic and sustainable thought, but there's something underneath of that that's much uh, more profound than the, the technology of it, which is not to say that the technology of it should take a second seat to a more quote unquote spiritual relationship. And I put quotes around that because I think a lot of people go for the spirituality without seeing that it needs to be the spirituality and the politics and the economics, the gender relationships, the relation to animals, all those kinship things are, are part of the spirituality, okay? You can't have the spirituality separate from the politics, the, the social justice issues, uh, community organizing, all of that is part of it. So, you know, I have kind of issues with people wanting native spirituality in order to solve this problem without jumping into the fray, you know, and saying, well, this is all one thing here. You know, you can't, you can't separate them apart. That's part of what the problem has been. You know, people come here and they impose a religion and they practice that religion one day a week or they practice that religion and impose that religion in the way that they want that really doesn't consider uh, a sense, a deeper sense of balance that's inherent in nature. It becomes more of an ideological thing. And that's where the appropriation of native spirituality is problematic within this whole context of climate change. Part of the thing, you know, uh, gr the grief needs to be dealt with. This is certainly something, you know, uh, I heard a Lakota scholar talking about at one point and around the turn of the century, the 20th century, uh, most Native people knew far more people who were dead than alive. So how do you deal with that grief? Okay. And how does that grief come down over generations? That's something that social scientists uh, within the colonial communities really have to address. Uh, you know, and from my perspective, teaching this material for 30 years, the grief over the genocide here and all the destruction is, is deeply placed in non-native uh, psyches as well it's not so so when you look at the grief over climate change that has to be recognized as something that dovetails with the grief over the genocide that transgenerational trauma does not apply only to the quote unquote victims of the genocide talk to any german psychologist and he'll tell you exactly that you know, or a psychiatrist, if he's dealing with Germans today who were not even born during the Holocaust over there, they're all still having to deal with this. And they're not Jewish people, they're Germans who have inherited the trauma of that Holocaust. Well, Americans do the same thing. And I would submit that Australians and, you know, any colonial people that comes in and you know, wreaks havoc, their children have a legacy that they have to deal with that, with. And I see that tremendously 
And uh, my students, you know, once they open up to see what really happened, they're going, oh, I knew that, I knew that was there. And it's part of a very deep sorrow. And where that touches into climate change really, really needs a deep analysis and, uh, and expression. They're not separate issues is the, the point I'm trying to make, you know. Uh, they're intimately tied together climate change and the Holocaust here. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, I'm not asking you because you've already said it, but if you can explain again how there is no separation, how spirituality isn't just a separate thing, but it's woven into everything we do, and that we wouldn't even necessarily call it spirituality, perhaps. We might even just call it respect so that everything we care uh, we care for, but the respect comes from a spirituality, but... Um, yeah. Well, you know, that's a difficult thing to explain because uh, one time years ago, I was in a philosophy class and I kept arguing with the teacher and everybody in the class all semester long and finally uh, this student from Texas with a real thick accent, you know, kind of thicker than my grandpa's even, said, Stanley, he said, I finally get you. He said, we're, we're building all these small parts and aiming them towards the whole, and you're coming from an assumption of the whole and talking about how all the parts, the little parts swim together. And that was kind of a revelation to me because my way of seeing was strictly to me at that point, my way of seeing. And I couldn't quite understand why I was struggling so much with the class. And, and Michael Eaton was the man's name. He articulated it better than I could have. I couldn't, I didn't have that perspective. So, you know, If, if we if we look at the natural word of world, if we look at nature, I can't. I it's really difficult for me to see a forest, or the ocean, or the sky, or the earth as being something that I'm not a part of. Right? It's very. It's it completely. It's beyond my imagination. Okay. So I know that I'm completely affected by the weather. I kind of see uh, all of human reality in finite terms as existing between the surface of the earth and the place where the atmosphere dissipates into uh, a space where we cannot live. And that's a very small cuticle around the mother, that's a really small cuticle of experience uh, around the earth. And all the parts of our bodies are made up of all the parts of the earth. And there's something, I don't know what to call it, but there's something also that's, that's of the universe that gives us that spark where all those parts of the earth and the sky and everything all ignites within that coalescence of minerals and, and gases and such to make us a human being. So, you know, there can't, there can't be any separation in any sense, but an intellectual sense. And so that's where I think the ideologies have to be looked at. The religions need to be looked at, you know? Uh, the millennial religions. I mean, I have a lot of respect for every religion, but I think um, there are places where people apply them uh, to thinking about it only matters what happens after you die, or that's kind of a simplistic way to put it, but they're about the by and by. They're not about how to live now, at least as, as I see them being applied. I think within all of them that I've looked at closely, there is very much an aspect of them that, that teach you how to live in a, in a good manner here right now. 
and to respect all of life. But that's not what is practiced in my view for the most part, you know? So you wanted to get back to right relationship, I think. I interrupted you. You were going to talk about getting back. No, that's okay. Yeah. Um, did you finish what you wanted to say about kinship? Well, in that description of life existing in this small cuticle of experience, there can be nothing else but kinship as the primary relationship, interrelationship. That's why people say, you know, all my relations, you know, it doesn't mean only what people call sentient beings. It means all forms of life and every form that we see, sit on, touch, smell, are surrounded by is, is a form of life. So it's, it's all a relative and not relative, but a relative. Um, I think it's, I think it's important to have that as a concept. I think it's more important to entertain it as a daily experience as, as much as possible yeah. within a society that's kind of divided up. It's all kind of separated. Yeah. And I don't know where that came from. Perhaps it's a Western model. I certainly know in the educational system, uh, What's cutting edge now is this concept of intersectionality, you know, where the different uh, disciplines start to touch each other. And it, to me, that's kind of like sustainability being a cutting edge idea, idea right? So I would think sustainability in the ideal world would be the priority uh, for the last 50, 60,000 years. So I think what happened is something, a set of ideologies came in that broke apart that sustainability, that notion of sustainability. And I think we've had that before. And I think that we've probably, as humans, had a much longer period of time uh, living with sustainability and kinship as the central modality then we have this time of separation and yet we're defining the human experience uh today and human nature within a relatively short time frame of non-sustainability okay we kind of tend to think about evolution and human evolution in a straight line, right? And we're, we're getting better and better. Yeah, but I think that that's really not the case. And we have to be honest and looking at where we are now and how we've gotten here and see that this is perhaps an aberration. Uh -huh. it, it's, it's not human nature, it's an aberration. Um, speaking with a friend of mine who's a, a brilliant Buddhist, he, his feeling was that as soon as we began agriculture, we started leaving the land and treating plants and animals as things or as enemies coming into our area, that agriculture was the beginning of it. But you talked about the native peoples practicing agriculture in complete harmony without any sense of separation, fields and fields of grain you mentioned. So that kind of changes his idea that that's probably not the origin of our problems, not agriculture itself. Yeah, I think agriculture gets uh, a bad name <laughs> in a sense, and it and it's seen as an evolution of hunter-gathering cultures. And those the hunter-gathering cultures are very often seen as kind of simple, small-numbered cultures that didn't really impact uh, the landscapes that much, although. Uh, there are arguments that they impacted the landscape tremendously. But uh, I think it has to do more with the social technology. Whether And I think that the, the gatherer-hunter cultures very often practiced agriculture 
and certainly animal husbandry in ways that we don't really uh, develop a lot of analysis of, which we should. You know, if you look at the plain societies as kind of a direct example, people t use the term Rome, you know, they roamed the plains. Well, what's the image of that? You know, they just kind of walked around and shot a buffalo when they ran into them and that kind of thing. But if you listen to Lakota economists today, they will tell you, you know, the buffalo is going to be in this place at this time of the year. And so the people are going to be at that place in that time of the year. You know, there are natural cycles that the animal and that the people are working together with. And, and so that's a type of animal husbandry in a way. And the word roaming doesn't really cover <laughs> that. And it's kind of the same thing here in California. And so I'm not so sure that agriculture is the uh, culprit, as I've heard very often. Perhaps manners in which agriculture uh, was practiced in Europe, certainly, I think, mm -hmm. Uh, is the case because uh, from some of my readings, I've seen that the rivers of Europe were completely polluted in the 1400s because of agricultural runoff and such. So, and that you couldn't drink the water and so on and so forth all the way back then. So there's something else that was happening that I think is more a removal from the natural world psychologically and socially, and exactly what that is, I'm not really sure. But I think it's important to think about. And I think that uh, uh, I'd like to read more studies on that. You know, when I listened to Bruce Pascoe talk about agriculture 60,000 years ago, okay, and we don't see the environmental devastation where that was being practiced. And certainly here in California, agriculture was being practiced, but it's more with what is being grown naturally uh, in an area. It's working with native plants and it's not putting so much an intellectual concept or ideology on top of the landscape as it is working with the landscape. That comes back to the, the idea of kinship at the center of the society. So that perhaps when we see agriculture becoming destructive, it may be when there are certain kinds of stratifications with society that preclude the kinship. Uh -huh. This is not to say that there was that you know, there was not stratification in sustainable native societies. I'm sure there was, but th th I think they're more benevolent uh, uh, stratification. Certainly when we look at the archeological record, we can only say that they were, uh, that they were benevolent stratifications. A friend of mine who's an archeologist told me one time when people were saying, well, the Indians killed each other too, they did war too. And his approach was, yes, you know, people have a tendency to do that kind of stuff. He said, but there's no archeological evidence uh, for any major conflagration here on Turtle Island for at least 10,000 years. Now he told me that 20 years ago. So the number 10,000 has doubled uh, at this point. However, if you go into the empire builders, all right, down in Mesoamerica, then you see a lot more conflagration. So there's something about the impulse to empire that is perhaps one of the seeds there. Uh, people make that to, to, to seeing the lack of sustainability. You're talking, uh, about, you're talking about the empires in South America? In Central and South America, yeah. yeah. And perhaps empires wherever they come up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another although, ter although the term empire is used for people, for uh, non-Western peoples here in North America, I don't think it's a true application of what 
empire is about. I think it's more in projection. You know, like people people say, well, the Apache Empire controlled the Southwest. Well, none of the Apaches that I know, <laughs> uh, which is quite a few, would accept the term empire as being what they were about, okay? Uh, or what they're about today, you know? Because what they're about today is kind of uh, a reflection of what they were earlier of course with all the ravages of colonization being part of that yeah yeah thank you stan this was lovely Any yeah i mean it's you know the way i relate to it is not really mine <laughs> right you know, the, the wisdom I'm, of Mary. but what is yours is the courage with which you've dealt with it all that's yours yeah, it's, it's, I, none of this, I could say, I could say none of this without all the people around me and all the people that I'm constantly learning from. So in a sense, really most of what I've said to you is stuff that I'm in the process of learning right now from Greg and Kyle White and Harold and Rita and all these folks that I'm always talking with about this. So when I do something like this, I'm just kind of uh, saying what everybody else is telling me, and now I'm interrelating with it at the moment. I mean, these conversations are happening right now. Uh, yeah, which is pretty cool. Yes. And I think that says something, too, to the people who often talk about the resilience of Native people. And, you know, I hear a lot of, a lot of Native people complaining about that word, right? They don't like it. You know, uh, at the same time, there is something, it's just the, I think it's more the courage, really. You know, the, I think it's more the courage and that that's what really gives me, uh, feeds me, you know? It feeds me the courage I see in here around me. And, and doing this. Yeah. Uh -huh. And beauty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. All right, Stan, thank you for your time. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. This is Dr. Susan Eyrick for Earthfire Radio, a production of Earthfire Institute. If you would like to help with our mission to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature, please make a donation at our website, www.earthfireinstitute.org. The soundscapes are by Wild Sanctuary Presents, Bernie Krauss and Philip Auberg. Thank you for listening.